Well, good morning, everyone. Spencer here. Good to be back with you again, opening the Gospel of John. A few weeks ago when I was teaching, I told you a little bit about my time at university. Uh, I went to a school called Houghton College in rural New York State. And I want to tell you another little story about one night when I was at that school, a night that I don't think I'll ever forget because a lot of peculiar things happened. It started when a few of my roommates asked if I wanted to go to uh, the family farm of one of my roommates. And on that farm, they had what in New York State is called a nuisance permit, which allows the hunting of deer or other animals that could cause damage to crops or property or something like that. I've never been much of a hunter, but they invited me so I agreed to go along. What I didn't realize was that they actually needed me for a specific reason. Once we got to the family farm, they set me up at the top of a cornfield and it was getting dark at this point. They gave me a little flashlight and they said, we want you to work your way down through the cornfield, shine this light around and make a whole bunch of noise and any deer or anything that's in here, you'll scare it out and we'll be on the other side and we'll you know, do what hunters do. I had no interest in firing a gun, so I said, sure, I'll do that. But as soon as they left, and I was standing there alone in this cornfield in the dark with a small flashlight, I realized that I did not realize what I was getting myself into. I was scared. I can be honest about that. It was scary. I don't know if you've ever walked through a cornfield at night by yourself. It's terrifying, compounded by the fact that there were some people on the other side that were doing some hunting. It was just not a pleasant experience. So you can probably imagine that when I got through that cornfield to the other side, saw the lights from my friend's family's farmhouse there, saw them, realized I wasn't gonna be the victim of a horrible hunting accident, I was relieved. I was glad to have the whole thing over with. But the night wasn't over yet. On our way back to campus, we realized that the power had actually gone out in the whole area. And so we got back to campus and it too was actually in pitch darkness. And, you know, it was a Christian university, so nothing too crazy went on that I was aware of. But, you know, people got up to some shenanigans. As I remember, the lights came on a few hours later. But over the next few days, stories were coming out of things that had happened when uh, the power was out. And just to give you one small example, there was a, a big quad right in the middle of campus with some, some beautiful walking paths there. And it had come out that some unnamed individuals had taken their cars and were just ripping around the quad when the lights were out. Not something you'd probably want uh, the lights to come back on when you're uh, in the middle of that. I tell you this strange story just to illustrate the fact that when things are illuminated, when the lights come on, it can bring out all kinds of different responses from people. Some people are relieved or, or grateful, whereas others shy back. Maybe they feel anxious about things being illuminated. And that's what we're going to explore this morning as we think about Jesus saying, making the bold statement, I am the light of the world. What are the implications of that? What are the effects of Jesus as the light of the world? That's really the question we're going to ask this morning. And we're going to look at three effects of the light coming on. I'm going to give them to you now just as a spoiler. The first one is that when the light comes on, the light brings life. And in scriptural terms, life is salvation. Secondly, when the light comes on, we can judge things rightly. We're able to judge things rightly when the lights come on. And thirdly, 
when the light comes on, it pushes away the darkness. So that's what we're going to explore this morning. And then at the end of our passage, we're going to see Jesus gives uh, a starting place. Because as we ask the question, okay, if those are things that Jesus does as the light of the world, how do I get myself ready for that? What's, what's the posture I should take? Jesus gives us a starting place, and we'll look at that uh, at the end of our passage. So that's where we're going this morning. As we get started, as we always do, I would invite you just to take a moment to pause, to uh, think about how you're feeling today, this week, and invite Jesus into that place. He wants to be there with you, and then we'll get started. All right, if you have a Bible, we are going to be in John chapter 8, starting at verse 12. John chapter 8, starting at verse 12, says this, Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now John begins this passage by saying, again, again Jesus spoke. Now, that makes us ask the question, you know, what is he trying to, what is he continuing on from? Like, what are we supposed to be thinking back on? And if you remember what Matt said about the passage last week, and probably there's a note in your Bible, as Matt talked about, that story of the adulterous woman uh, wasn't included there in John's, in the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel. Scholars do believe that the events of that story took place, and certainly it fits with the rest of Jesus' teaching and ministry, but it was a later addition into John's Gospel. So if we actually skip back over that story, where we land is back earlier in John chapter 7. Look with me if you have a Bible at verse 37. It says this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. A bold statement. And sure enough, as we looked at that passage, it causes a stir in the crowd. There are some saying, you know, who is this person? Could he be the prophet? Could he even be the Messiah? We've never heard words like this. And then the Pharisees say, hang on, calm down, everyone. You don't see us worshiping him or following him or believing he's the Messiah. But then Nicodemus, who we know has that special relationship with Jesus, who visited him at night to ask some questions, he says, hey, maybe we should hear more of what Jesus has to say. And then this all kind of culminates with this biting response to Nicodemus in verse 52, where the Pharisees say, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So he asked the question, how is this significant? How does this connect with our passage this morning? Well, again, if we sort of pull the passage that we looked at last week um, out of there and just consider the verses we just read in, in our passage this morning, that would all be taking place within this Jewish celebration called the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a regular celebration for the Jewish people to remember their time wandering in the wilderness. And if you've spent any time reading the Old Testament, you might remember that God really provided for the people of Israel in three miraculous ways while they were there wandering in the wilderness. The first was through manna, through bread from heaven. Well, what did Jesus say back in John chapter 6? He said, I am the bread of life. 
Another way that God provided for the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness was by bringing water from a rock when they were thirsty. What did he say in the verses that we just read? He said, anyone who's thirsty should come to me and out of them will flow rivers of living water. A third way that Jesus or that God provided for the people of Israel when they were wandering was by giving them this pillar of fire to illuminate their way. And what does he say in our passage this morning? I am the light of the world. So in Jesus making this statement, I am the light of the world, he's really doing three things. He's completing this trifecta of taking these three elements that the Israelites remembered in the Feast of Tabernacles, remembered God's provision, and he takes those elements and he points them at himself. I'm the bread of life. Come to me if you're thirsty. I am the light of the world. Secondly, Jesus is throwing a bit of irony at the Pharisees, right? You remember what they said to Nicodemus? Hey, Nicodemus, have you not done your research? He's from Galilee. No prophet comes from Galilee. And Jesus says, oh, really? Well, I'm the light of the world. And probably some, some bells started to go off, reminding some in that audience, some who were listening, of some things that the prophet Isaiah said. Listen as I read Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2. It says, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, listen to this, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Oh, no prophet is ever to come from Galilee. Remember what Isaiah said. I am the light of the world. And thirdly, he's making a bold claim about himself. He's throwing a bit of irony, but he's also, and probably most obviously, making a bold claim about himself. That he is the light of the world and that uh, in him is life or salvation. You ask, how are, how are all those things connected? Well, Listen as I read again from Isaiah, this time Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, this is God saying, it is, too, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so this is our first effect that light has. What happens when the light comes on? The light brings life or salvation. What else does, you know, are there deeper truths that John in this moment wants us to understand about this? I think there are by the, the words of Jesus that he records. First of all, I think he's trying to show us that Jesus, as he often did, is making an exclusive claim about himself. He doesn't say, I am a light in the world. You know, I've got some good things to say. I can illuminate some things for you. Come and listen. No, he says, I am the light of the world. Pretty exclusive claim. Martin Luther uh, explained it this way. He said, Jesus is saying, darkness reigns wherever I am not. Whenever I'm extinguished, no one sees anything. Jesus is making a pretty significant claim of exclusivity. Secondly, though, Jesus, in the words that he uses, really is, is, is painting for us a present reality. Listen again to what he said. You know, whoever follows me 
does not walk in darkness, but has the light of life. This sounds to me like an active, present, ongoing reality. And friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, salvation and eternal life should never be some abstract, futuristic idea only relevant on the day we die. No. When Jesus shines his light upon us to give us life, it's real life here and now. The kind of life that we as human beings were always meant to live. Again, think about some of the words that we use talking about certain human experiences. Think about something that you might say, you know, when someone's newly engaged, you might say, oh, when she was talking about her proposal, her face just lit up. Or maybe when you see a new parent, you say, oh, when he was holding his, his new baby, his face was just shining. We're talking about like people who are truly alive in those moments. That's the kind of life that Jesus brings as the light of the world. It's present, it's vibrant, it's real, it's ongoing. Let's look back at our text. The Pharisees, as we're going to see, are about to return to an old argument, an old debate they've had with Jesus. Look at verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. If you remember back, this is John chapter 5 all over again, where they ask Jesus for more witnesses to testify uh, to his authenticity. And indeed, in that conversation, he gave them compelling witnesses. What does he say here? Look at verse 14. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So what's the second effect of the light coming on? When the light comes on, we're able to judge things rightly. See, Jesus attacks the ignorance of the Pharisees right at the root. He says, you're, you're asking about witnesses, but you don't even understand the most basic facts of this case that you're trying to judge, like where I came from and where I'm going. And if you don't even understand those most basic facts, it's clear that your ability to judge this case is compromised. Look at the way he, he contrasts his own judgment and the judgment of the Pharisees. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one yet. Even if I do, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father. What's, what's Jesus saying here? Well, first he says, the Pharisees judge according to the flesh. What he's saying is that they judge based on appearances, based on worldly standards, a superficial kind of judgment. And he contrasts that with himself. And what Jesus says there can feel confusing, almost contradictory, doesn't it? Let's, let's try and understand it. He says, first, I judge no one. What, what does he mean by this? Well, think back to, again, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus was sent into the world to save it, not to judge it. And yet, the effect of Jesus' life and ministry will be a, a division between all people, because of the things that Jesus said, because of the things that he did, 
you are forced to make a decision about Jesus. Do you believe he was who he said he was, or don't you? And as a result, there is a judgment that happens. D.A. Carson explains it this way. He says, Jesus' very presence guarantees that humanity divides around him. And Jesus, in, in saying this to the Pharisees, he points out that they're never going to be able to grasp the truth of the situation if they continue to judge by purely human standards. They need their thinking illuminated. We need our thinking to be illuminated. And, and this has implications, friends, for the way that we respond and evaluate Jesus, but also the way that we respond to the people around us and even to ourselves. Matt talked about this last week, and, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, picks up on this in some of his writings. A great example, 2 Corinthians 5. Listen as I read verses 16 to 18. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, You judge according to the flesh. We, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So unless we have the light of Jesus illuminating our thinking, we're going to judge ourselves and the people around us wrongly. And as Matt talked about last week, when we judge each other on a superficial level or by human standards, we'll often err in one of two ways. We might look at each other through a lens of legalism, looking at fellow believers and saying, wow, they, they must not be that serious about their Christian faith with you know, the things that I see them doing, the way that I see them living their life. Or we turn that lens on ourselves. Man, I screwed up so badly today. There's no way that I'm truly loved by God. I just can't be. I, in the face of what I've done, there's no way. Or the other wrong lens that Matt talked about is looking at the people around us or ourselves through a lens of license. Man, the Christians around me are so uptight. They're so you know, they're so concerned with these disciplines, reading their Bibles all the time. Like, don't they know, you know, there's grace, they're loved, they're forgiven. They don't need to, you know, be so concerned with all this stuff. And friends, I, I want to be careful with this, but I also am feeling convicted to, to, to be honest about this. As, as a pastor, I'm concerned with the things that I see the church saying to each other online during this time, COVID-19 and and self-isolation and all these other things that are happening. We're starting to see this kind of thinking happening on Facebook and all sorts of social media. It looks a little bit like this. See, there are people in the world right now, and including Christians, who want to be extra cautious. You know, let's, let's err on the side of caution. Let's keep shelter in place going as long as it needs to happen, and, and even longer, maybe, to be safe. And there are people online who are lobbing judgments at that group, saying, well, if you're, if you're so unconcerned about us being able to gather together again as the people of God, clearly you're just, you're motivated by fear or, or, you know, this Christian life must not really matter to you if you never care about having another service again. Accusations just being tossed at them. 
On the other hand, there are people, including some Christians, who want to be back, you know, trying to get our routines going again, including trying to gather together as God's people, get services going again as soon as we can. And some of those people are having judgments tossed at them. Wow, clearly they must be legalistic Christians if it's so important to them to be gathered together on a Sunday. Like, they must think that they're earning something from God by Sunday morning attendance. Otherwise, this wouldn't be so important. Don't they realize they're being blinded to, so that they can't love their neighbor? They're caring more about you know, Sunday attendance than protecting the vulnerable. Accusations being tossed. And friends, I think this is judging by worldly standards. Instead of lobbing these accusations and judgments, we need to approach these really difficult, unprecedented decisions, trying to find a middle way, of, uh, a middle way full of wisdom and grace. And we need to be charitable with one another as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, some scholars think that this is why the passage of the adulterous woman, the story that we looked at last week, was placed where it was so that when we approached these words of Jesus, which seem hard and, and somewhat confusing, that our minds would be drawn back to that story where Jesus said, you know, is there none left to condemn you? Well, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Jesus giving this perfect, uh, perfect convergence of grace and truth, judging rightly that our minds would be drawn back there as we approach his words here. When the light comes on, we're able to judge things rightly. Let's look back at our text. So Jesus has just talked about how he comes not to judge, but how the Father uses him as a tool for judgment in the world as people make their decisions about Jesus. The Pharisees, though, they, they miss it. They say, okay, you're talking about your father so much. Who is your father? We want to talk to him too. And Jesus, you know, you can just picture the, the frustration. But look at verse 21. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. What's the third effect of the light coming on? When the light comes on, it pushes back the darkness. What does Jesus mean? I'm going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. What's he saying? He's telling the Pharisees that his ministry on earth would end and he would ascend back to the Father. But because of their certainty that he couldn't be the Messiah, they were going to continue to look for the chosen one. They were going to look for the Messiah. But they weren't going to find him because Jesus was the one that they were looking for. He was the light of the world. And if they didn't come to him, they were going to be stuck in darkness. I am he, I am the one that you're looking for. But again, they get lost in Jesus' words. They get confused. At verse 22, they start thinking, is he talking about, you know, ending his own life? What is he, Jesus possibly meaning here? Look at verse 23. Again, tries to clarify. He said to them, you're from below. I am from above. You're of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless... You believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John makes it clear throughout his gospel, and, and Jesus is trying to make it clear here in his words as well, that there are only two responses to Jesus. Belief that he was who he said he was, or unbelief. 
And friends, there are those who, upon encountering Jesus, upon you know encountering the light, are not ready to step into the light. And they're going to retreat with the darkness. They're not ready for light. They want to stay in darkness. And John, as I said, talks about this throughout his gospel. Think back again. I'll read for us from, again, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. And this is the judgment, Jesus says. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. There are people who aren't ready, who are unwilling to come to the light, and they retreat with the darkness. But Scripture actually takes this a step further as well. See, we as followers of Jesus, we're to invite the Spirit to do this work in us as well, to shine the light of Christ in our lives and into new corners and new rooms and and push back the darkness, replacing it with the light of Christ. Again, Paul picks up on this in some of his letters. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He says, This is who you are, so live this way. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We are to allow the light of Christ to shine into new corners, new rooms, new parts of our life, and expose them to the light, to push back the darkness. And I don't know about you, friends, but if your experience is anything like mine, this season that we're in of uncertainty, of stress, of isolation is exposing some things in my life. It's shining a light in places that, you know, needed exposing, needed illumination so that the light of Christ can can take up residence there so that I can walk as a child of the light. This isn't This doesn't often feel good, but it is for our good. So those are our three effects of the light coming on. Jesus as the light of the world. The light brings life or salvation. The light allows us to judge things rightly. And the light pushes back the darkness. But as I said, you know, maybe you're you're recognizing, okay, these are things that Jesus does. But how do I, how do I... What posture do I take to be ready for that, to invite Jesus to do that work? Maybe you're watching this and you're still exploring who Jesus is. You're intrigued by him, like like Nicodemus. You know, maybe we need to hear more about what he says. You're starting to sense that there's more to this Jesus, but you have yet to experience that life that Jesus is talking about. You're wondering, how do I do that? How do I begin to experience that? Or, Or maybe you're starting to have some of those thoughts about the people around you where you feel like, yeah, maybe I'm, maybe I am judging on a superficial level by, by worldly standards. I need to judge rightly. I need my thinking to be illuminated. How do I do that? Or, or maybe you're recognizing the corners of your life that need exposing, that need illuminating. And you're asking, man, how do I, how do I allow Jesus to do that work of shining the light into those parts of my life?
Well, in the last part of our passage, Jesus gives us a way to start. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and immediately before this, John tells us that some of the people listening to Jesus' words professed faith in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What I want us to notice about Jesus' words is the beautiful cascading effect that he paints for us. And it begins with abiding in his word. Abiding is not a word that we use too often, but it means dwelling in or, or taking up residence in. And so you might think, oh, he's talking about studying scripture. And certainly that is an aspect of it, but it's, it's much bigger. It's much more than that. We're probably best to think about Jesus' invitation when he was calling his disciples. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We know that Jesus wasn't just inviting those men to, to come and listen to a few sermons or, or to read some things that Jesus had written. He was inviting them to take up residence with him, to walk where he walked, to live life with him, to model their lives after him. And that's the invitation that we're given as well, to abide with Jesus and in his word. And, and Jesus says, if we do that, we'll begin to, to know the truth. In other words, to judge rightly, to judge rightly who Jesus is and, and see the people around us the way that we ought to see them. And doing this then, knowing the truth, will set us free. And we say, well, freedom from what? Jesus tells us, freedom from slavery to sin. And remember, friends, this, is, this freedom is both that one-time forgiveness of uh, our debt of sin that Jesus took on himself, that the debt has been paid, our sins have been forgiven, but it's also this ongoing freedom from the power of sin in our lives. This daily, you know, pushing back the darkness, letting in the light of Christ. And it all begins with Jesus inviting us to abide in his word. So I want to end with the question to you. What is your response to the light? What's your response to Jesus? Do you welcome the light coming in? Do you want to, to bask in it? Or are you anxious? Do you feel yourself wanting to shy away? I'd invite you to come to the light. Because in Jesus is life. The greatest life that we could ever live. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we would be drawn into the light today. For anyone watching this who has never um, never made a decision to follow you, would they sense the, the life that you're offering, the true life that you're offering, and would they step into the light today? And for those of us who made decisions to be your disciples, 
um, at some time in the past, would we welcome the light shining into new corners of our life today, allowing the Spirit to do that work of pushing back the darkness, freeing us from the power of sin, and allowing us to walk more fully as children of light. Would you do this, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, we are going to take communion now. And so I would invite you to gather together those elements. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus, this is something that we do to remind us of who we are in Jesus, of what he's done for us and of who we are as a result. And Paul in 1 Corinthians, when he talks to the church at Corinth about communion, he reminds them that, that that's part of what communion does. It helps them to judge rightly. Let me read this for you quickly. He says, let, him, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, he says, we would not be judged. Paul's saying is when we see ourselves in light of Christ, we recognize that we are loved, we are forgiven, and we are invited to walk as children of light. So I'd invite you to take the bread now. A few verses earlier, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So take and eat in remembrance of him. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's drink in remembrance of him. Amen. Well, now let us sing together. Well, Church of the City, that's it for this morning. It has been good to be with you. Go now and walk as children of light. You are loved.